Our passage of scripture for this morning, John chapter 15, is quite complex. I suspect that as we just read it, some of you at some point realized you might have drifted off. You can't, the connections, they feel loose. It, it can be hard to track with. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is um, imagine if you ski, snow ski, and you're at the top of a beautiful ski run. Imagine um, picking your way down this beautiful run. I'm going to try to just start at the beginning and pick a line and go through the whole chapter. And um, I I think when, when it comes to something like this, the most important thing is to pick the best angle of entry. So here's the angle of entry that I think um, will open up the passage in the most fruitful way for us. It's this. It's to start out by asking yourself the question, would you like for your life to have meaning? I think this is the best way to enter John chapter 15. To ask yourself, have you ever wanted meaning in life? Do you long for real and deep satisfaction? Are you frustrated with your life? Are you tired of the hypocrisy and the competitive nature of our society? Are you looking for a way to break through dullness and drudgery? And I think that if if that is kind of your framework, then you can find your way through this chapter and you can feel its coherence. John chapter 15 gives us a path. And this path, it's definitely not a flight from difficulty and dullness and frustration. In John chapter 15, we're given a road through, not away from, but through the challenges of life. And on this road, there is real joy, real satisfaction. There is a life of weight and substance of meaning and purpose. Over and over in John chapter 15, Jesus offers us a way to experience the beating heart of the universe which is the real and intimate and pure love of God. Now, this is a claim that flies against a lot of the ways of thinking that exist in our world today. That there is a center of reality That there is a center to the universe, and the center is a God who has the characteristics of a person. He can be known. He can be related to. But this God is love, 
pure love to the core of his being. And what Jesus is saying over and over in chapter 15 is that there is a way for us to experience not the meaninglessness of the universe, but the meaningfulness of the universe. Not the purposelessness of an existence within a space-time continuum that is vast beyond reckoning, but there is a way to find the purposefulness at the center of all reality. And that way is through a friendship with Jesus. That a friendship with Jesus is the way to all of this. Jesus came to earth, the Bible claims, to bridge the gap between us and God, who is the beating heart of a purposeful, meaningful, loving, real, personality-like universe. Jesus came to bridge the gap between us and God, between us and real life, between us and satisfaction, to bridge the gap between us and a life of depth and meaning and purpose. Jesus came to dwell inside of us, just like he came to dwell in Mary's womb, he came to dwell in your life, to live inside of you. As the deepest, the most intimate friend you'll ever have. And it's in this friendship with Jesus that you find the path. Not away from suffering and pain and drudgery, but a way to go through it with joy. He came to offer us this intimate friendship, and it's in this intimate friendship that we are able to tap into the center, the pulsating, life-giving, joyful center of love that holds the whole universe together, God himself. Just listen again to some of the things Jesus says in John chapter 15. Verse 1, I am the true vine. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. This is not the claim of a Confucius. This is not the claim of a Martin Luther King Jr. This is not the claim of any one of a number of remarkable historical figures who have led exemplary lives that had a deep impact on the world. This is the claim of the center of reality. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Aren't we now getting up next to your deepest aspirations? To get what you most deeply crave? Verse 9, abide in my love. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is what Jesus offers. Now, you can reject him or you can accept him, but don't act like he doesn't say this stuff. 
This is what he offers. The story of your life, your particular life, will be fulfilled as you humbly open your heart to a real, personal, intimate friendship with Jesus. He is what your deepest aspirations are leading you to. If you will follow them, if you will really tap into your deepest hungers and you will follow them, no matter what religion you are, no matter what ethnic group you are, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what your lit literary capacities are, no matter what your education is, you will find that you were made for God. And you will be restless until you follow your hungers to the Lord Christ. Until you dwell in Jesus, until he dwells in you, you will be restless. Now, that's the astonishing claim that he's making here. Now, in order to live this, in order to live deeply in friendship with Jesus, there's a problem. The problem is that he wants to dwell in you. He wants to dwell in me. The problem is that the home of our hearts are cluttered. Our hearts need to be cleaned and tidied up so that they can be filled more and more with the Lord Jesus himself. This is what Jesus is showing us in the first couple of verses. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Notice how Jesus frames the issue left to itself a grapevine will become way too bushy there'll be more and more leaves less and less grapes rose bushes are the same way a rose bush left to itself will grow in on itself producing lots and lots of not so good roses rather than a smaller number of splendid flowers so God the Father works in our lives like a master gardener cutting away the superfluous growth. When we enter into a friendship with Jesus, not only is it an intimate friendship, it is a painful friendship. And the pain is pruning. God, our creator, he alone knows what pruning needs to occur in our lives. He knows what watering and feeding, what sunshine or rain, what warmth or cold is needed and when it's needed so that each of us can become our truest self, our most authentic self. He knows which goals and ambitions need to be cut away so that we can bring the gift of our truest self to the world in a way that blesses the world maximally. Accidents, sickness, failures, the loss of a job, the death of someone we love. A whole variety of unexpected events come along in life. 
and cut us, hurt us, wound us. And they can leave us in a state of grief and desolation. And we feel empty. Life no longer is flowing through us. We're more like a desert than a garden. We lose our enthusiasm. We lose our desire. Like the wounded vine whose branches have been cut off, we have to wait in those seasons for new life. New life to flow again. Through these sufferings and a thousand other cuts, God the Father is pruning us for something new, for a life more centered in God, in the things of God. Our hearts, you see, they get cluttered with things to do. Good things to do. Lots of growth. We're bushing out everywhere. We get busy. We get too busy. We wake up one day and God gets so little of our attention. So he prunes us. He prunes because if we are to be more present to God, we have to be less present to other things. And sometimes this kind of pruning, it comes slowly. Sometimes he prunes gradually as we grow older and are less taken up by the things we've got to do and the need for success and for reputation, and for power, and so we make more time for God and the things of God. Some pruning comes because we want it. We ask for it. We long for it. We know there's stuff in our life that's a distraction. We, we, we ask God to take it away. We yearn to have more time with God. And He hears our unspoken prayers that just live at the level of a low-grade desire. He hears them as requests. Sometimes pruning comes unexpectedly and violently. And when that happens, we can be so suddenly emptied of life, so full of anguish, that it can turn into anger and depression. But even that, if we will wait, even anger, even depression, even anguish and despair, even that can open us up to a new work of God. In the words of a beautiful French-Canadian philosopher and theologian, who spent most of his working life caring for profoundly disabled adults. Jean Vanier, one of my heroes, in his words, our emptiness itself becomes a cry for God. And in those seasons, the most important thing to do is nothing. Just wait. Just Wait. We need to learn how to wait in the desert, to wait patiently, sometimes in pain, sometimes in anguish, sometimes in anger, sometimes in despair, sometimes in sheer boredom. Wait for a new gift from God. 
So Jesus comes to dwell within us, to lead us to God. But the home of our hearts needs to be cleaned up. It needs to be decluttered so that he can fill us more and more with himself. Why? So that the life-giving love of God can flow more and more in us and through us. John 15, the end of verse 2. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. In our Old Testament readings, the Psalms, Psalm 80, Isaiah, that Michelle and Sam read to us, Israel forgot. They forgot this part of it. They forgot that the gracious indwelling of God was not an invitation to settle down and forget the rest of the world but that the gracious indwelling of God was an invitation to mission. God loves the world. He loves this world more than you love your child, more than you love your beloved. He loves the world, even the parts of it you hate, more than the greatest love you've ever mustered a thousandfold. He loves this world. The whole world, and the world shows up no less than 40 times in this section of John's gospel. 40 times. We do not exist as the church of the incarnation. As individuals, we do not exist for ourselves. We exist to bear fruit for the world. And we learn how to humbly open the door of our hearts as we learn to do this, to open our lives to a deep and intimate friendship with Jesus. As we learn to make our home in Jesus and as we learn to let Jesus make his home in us, as we learn to live day by day with Jesus and to walk with him and listen to him and follow his desires and to be nourished by his word and his body, as we do this, we become free, truly free, free to be our truest selves. But like Israel, we must never make becoming ourselves the end game. If we do, we'll turn in on ourselves in some toxic way. Like Israel, we must never allow this simple but deep journey inward to turn us inward on ourselves. We dwell with Jesus only as we go with Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus is moving. He's being sent. That's the fruit. That's the fruit of John 15. The fruit God is pruning us for is to make the life of Jesus visible in the midst of the world. That's the fruit. The fruit he's pruning us for is to make Jesus' life visible in the midst of this world. It's for us to live in Jesus and Jesus to live in us so that the life of Jesus himself is reproduced in our lives in the midst of our neighborhoods, in our friend sets, in our families, in our careers, in our politics. Now, how does that happen? How is it that the life of Jesus is made visible in our lives? Well, in verses 9 through 17, over and over, we see that the answer to that question is counterintuitive. 
The fruit is to make the life of Jesus manifest in the world. How do we do that? How do we make the life of Jesus manifest in this world? In verses 9 through 17, over and over we see that the life of Jesus is made visible in our lives through love and obedience held together. What we see is that love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus require each other. That love and obedience are the flip sides of the same coin. To love Jesus is to obey him, and to obey him is to love him. Now, this is hard for us. Because we've been trained to think of love and obedience not as an organic whole. Not as flip sides of the same coin, but as actually at cross purposes with each other. This is a... When you read Jesus saying, love, 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 and my command to you is to obey me, we feel like, a, like our transmission just went out. Why, why, why does that feel so foreign to us? Well, I think the reason is quite complex. And at the risk of oversimplifying, on the one hand, and on the other hand of being overly philosophical, I want to take a few minutes to try to lay out for you why I think we struggle with this. Our struggle starts, I think, with the way our society for the last 400 years has come to think of freedom. In the middle of the 19th century, John Stuart Mill, who some argue is the most influential English-speaking philosopher of the 19th century, Mill famously wrote that real freedom is the freedom to pursue our own good in our own way, so long as we do not deprive others of their good in their pursuit of the good. And so we swim in a water where freedom is in tension with the common good. And our society has resolved this tension by naively and stubbornly insisting that it is in the pursuit of self-interest that the common good is best achieved. That's the source of modern liberal economic theory. That's the source of so much that's going on in the rights-based arguments of our society today. Life works best when we are free to pursue self-interest unless it deprives others. But again and again and again, the data has come in declaring that doesn't work. The powerful get their self-interest, but the miles and miles of victims, of poor, of marginalized, of disempowered, piles up on us. What I'm saying is that life works far better if we can conceive of freedom not in terms of self-fulfillment for our own sake, but freedom in terms of self-giving for the sake of others. 
In other words, freedom is important. It is very, very important. And freedom from oppression and from domination and freedom from poverty and freedom from disease, this is all so incredibly important. But liberation from others is true freedom if it is only liberation for others. Freedom of choice, freedom of speech, freedom of worship. These are so important, but they are only helpful if they enable us to choose the good of our communities. So our struggle with hearing of love and obedience is two sides of the same coin, I think, starts in the way we think of freedom without even thinking about it. This is just the water we swim in. The fact that for 400 years, our culture thinks that unless you have options, you don't have freedom. And that the the best environment is the most option-thick environment. And that constraints and limits are the barriers to freedom. And the only way to become your best self is to move beyond restraint, beyond limits, beyond boundaries, Whether it's your gender or your education level or your economic level, that's where I think it starts and I think it moves on from there. I think when we have this view of freedom as freedom from constraint instead of freedom to, then it gets wrapped up in the way we think of love. See, when that's your fundamental view of freedom, then you begin to think of love, true love, which is always hard to say without thinking of love, true love. It's what brings us together. True love. Within this view, when you think of freedom in that way, true love means giving the one you love freedom from all demand and constraint. No strings, no ties, no claims, no expectations, no future. And that's why marriage is falling out of fashion. Because the, command, the demands of marriage to ex- exclusive relationship now feel as if they are working against true love. This is why marriage is becoming an outdated concept. But the problem is that no true lover can be indifferent to the response of the beloved, no matter what the most recent New York Times article says about open marriage. Because true love always makes a claim. Always does. And yet it also gives freedom. Just think of how when a mother loves a child, think of how coercive it is in a cheeky way, right? I mean, think how, how when a mother loves a child, she's creating the context in which the child is free to love her in return. In other words, love, true love, is at one and the same time profoundly unconditional and massively conditional. Duty and delight only work together. Duty without delight is slavery. Delight without duty will fizzle out. Duty and delight go naturally together. And when you are in love, you find yourself frequently asking, what else can I do in order to delight my lover? And when the person you love is moved to joy, you're filled with joy. 
When you love someone, you find it profoundly satisfying to do what the one you love delights in you doing. Now, this opens up for us the way in which obedience at the end of the day is the core discipline of desire. Because doing the will of the beloved is the way we practice love. So John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17 are claiming that when we love Jesus, obedience becomes joy and duty becomes delight. And on the flip side, when love and obedience cease, the branch of love is dead. And what we need to do in that moment when our love for the Lord has grown cold, when we've fallen away from obedience, what we need to do is to grieve and repent and turn again to humbly open our heart to that intimate friendship with Jesus, which is the source of all that is good and true and beautiful in this world. Now let's pause Remember, I said this is a complicated passage. I'll stop all the philosophy there. Let's pause and remember where we are in John 15. Jesus came to dwell with us, to lead us to God. But the home of our hearts, it needs to be cleaned up and decluttered so that he can fill us more and more with himself. And he does this so that the life-giving love of God that is the pulsating center of the universe can flow into us and through us in order to bring that life To the world and this life, the life of Jesus, it's made manifest and visible in our world when we give Jesus our loyal love, our duty, and our delight. And as we do this, as we manifest the life of Jesus in the midst of the world by our allegiance and loyalty, by our love and devotion to Jesus, get this, what he says next is also counterintuitive. The next paragraph is about Suffering. As we do this, we will suffer. That's what happens in verses 15 through 25. Listen again to verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, in other words, you stepped out of the rhythm of the world into this other rhythm. You stepped off the path that the world lines out for how to find true joy and meaning and depth and happiness and all of that, and you stepped onto a different path. Because you are not on the same path. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, that whole other path will hate you. Now, if you've been following along with the the train of thought so far, it can help you see that Jesus isn't just some paranoid cynic. Our world claims that the route to true freedom and being truly yourself and being really happy is through self-assertion. To throw off the bonds of obedience. But here Jesus is saying that the way to real life and real joy is through not self-assertion, but self-denial. And this is a message that everybody on the self-assertion path will hate. Our society sees glory in achievement. But we are shown throughout the book of John 
that real glory comes through surrender. How many of us that are parents are raising our kids with that rubric? How many of us as parents are finding glory in our children's achievement? See, this is a different path. And when you begin to live this way, there are many, many people in your family and in your set of friends and in your career who will look and say, no, thank you. Nope. And this will lead to you being looked at as a threat. This will lead to suffering. But notice what happens next. Verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now just feel the movement of thought that's occurred. Jesus came to dwell within us, to lead us to God. But the home of our hearts need to be cleaned up and decluttered so that he can fill us with more and more of himself. And he does this so that the life-giving love of God can flow in us and through us to bring that life into the world. And this life, the life of Jesus, it's made visible in the world when we give our love and obedience to Jesus. But when we do that, when we live lives of love and obedience to Jesus, not everyone will appreciate it and we will suffer for it. And it is exactly at that moment when we are most assured of the gift of the Spirit. It is in that moment when we are most assured that we will not be left alone. There is an advocate who will rise up in that moment and who will bring the very power and truth of God himself into that suffering situation. He will bear witness at that moment to Jesus. He will penetrate the darkness of unbelief with the light which reveals Jesus is who we are saying he is. In other words, through our lives and our words and our deeds, and above all else, through our sufferings, the mighty Spirit of God will bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the path to life. The promise that Jesus is making here is to the church which shares the tribulation which arises from faithfulness. The promise is that exactly in your suffering for Jesus, exactly in your humiliation for Jesus, when the worst thing that ever happens to middle-class Americans occurs, people think ill of you. <gasps> the horror. When they think you're intolerant. Oh, the worst Accusation I can be ever made, right? When, when we get struck, not with the real kind of suffering most people feel, but the peer pressure that we learn to hate in junior high and we continue to compromise to avoid it in our 40s and 50s. 
In the moment of that humiliation, the mighty spirit of God will bear his own witness to the crucified Jesus as Lord and the only giver of life. Now let's go back to where we started. Do you want a life of meaning? Of real gravity and weight and purpose and satisfaction? The life of friendship with Jesus is the path. It is the only road. So open your hearts. Turn toward him. And humbly open the door of your life and let him in. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.